have to give an account to him, will some unbelievers have a valid defense before God for their unbelief? Will they have a valid defense before God for their unbelief? And if they do, would they then be undeserving of God's wrath against their unbelief? I mean, if they have a valid defense, then how could God justly punish them for their unbelief? That's a question. Now, that, those questions are answered in, in different ways. And maybe you've come up with an answer, but I, wanna, I want you to see, is your answer biblical? What does the Bible say about those specific questions? How would the Bible answer those questions? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, I want to read chapter 1, 18 through 23, just for the context. And actually, this section goes from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to verse 32. I read that whole section last week. It kind of all goes together. It's one big section. But this morning, just chapter 1, 18 through 23, and then we will narrow in on verses 19 through 20. All right, beginning in verse 18, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. We dealt with this last week, titled The Wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to consider three facts, three facts that are related to one another, three facts concerning God's general revelation. We're going to talk about that term, general revelation. Three facts concerning God's general revelation so that we might understand why the unbelieving world has absolutely no defense before God. So I'm kind of already telling you, I'm giving you my answer up front to how I think the Bible answers those questions I begin with, but I'm going to show you that from the text. This is not how Jeremy would answer them, this is how the Bible answers those questions. So let's look at this. The first fact concerning God's general revelation is God... Through his creation, I'll show you all this through the text, has to an extent plainly made himself known to all of humanity. That's the first one. Second fact, ever since the creation of the world, humanity has clearly perceived what God has made plain about himself through creation. Point three, fact three. Therefore, as a result of those two facts, here's a third fact. All who do not worship the true God are absolutely without excuse before him. And I might add, worthy of his condemnation and wrath. Now, before we get to the first point, I I told you I want to briefly mention this general revelation, that term general revelation, and how it is different from another type of revelation that 
theologians will refer to as special revelation. Special revelation. So two types of revelation, general and special, okay? If you're taking notes, write that down. The word revelation, let's begin with that word, revelation. We know it's actually a book of the Bible, right? Revelation. It has no S on the end, by the way, just a little note. It's not revelations, it's, it's revelation. It's the last book of the Bible. It simply means, that word simply means the disclosure of what was previously unknown. You got it? The disclosure of what was previously unknown. That's what revelation means. Or revealing, here's another way to say it, revealing of information that was not known before. Okay? General revelation then is a phrase that is used by theologians, those who study the Bible, those who study about God, learn about God, teach about God. That phrase, general revelation, is used by theologians, Christians, to refer to a limited amount of information, a limited amount of information concerning God that has been made known or revealed by him through nature or his creation. And when I am referring to creation, I'm referring to the world and the universe, his creation. Okay, you with me so far? Now, the reason it's called general revelation instead of special is because it has been made available by God to all persons at all times in all places. You got that? So you can think of its general or universal revelation. Universal. There is no one who has not been exposed to this revelation concerning God and about God. Why? Because it's revealed through his creation. And everyone is in his creation and a part of it. The other type of revelation I mentioned is special revelation. You might hear that term. It is slightly different from general revelation because it is information concerning God that has been revealed by God, listen, at specific times and places, specific times and places, and to particular people. And consequently, it has not been available to all people. Well, let me give you an example of special revelation. The Bible. The Bible falls under the category of special revelation. It was revealed or has been revealed at a particular time, in particular places, to particular people. There are still people in the world who have never read a page of the Bible. God's revelation. It is special revelation. Another example of special revelation, probably the greatest example, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself falls under the category of God's revelation about himself or concerning himself. Jesus said himself, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The writer of Hebrews says, God has spoken in many times, in many places, in many ways, through the prophets, in times past, 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us fully and finally through his son. But there are still people in this world who have never even heard the name of Jesus Christ. So it does not fall under the category of general revelation. You with me so far? Okay. Now, I could say more about special revelation, but today's message is not about special revelation. I just wanted to tell you about that to show you that there's two types primarily and give you the contrast. Today, we're looking at a passage that is really one of the key passages in the New Testament dealing with general revelation. Romans 1, 19 through 20. And that's what we're going to look at this morning in more detail. So, first point. God, through his creation, has to an extent, has to a degree, made, plainly made himself known to all of humanity. Romans chapter 1, verse 19. Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. Okay? Exactly what? Has God shown to them? And how has God shown it to them? I'm glad you asked. Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. Okay, that's what he has shown to them. Have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. This is how he has shown it to them, in the things that have been made. That's a reference to the creation. Conclusion, so they are without excuse. Now, it's important to remember the context here. What's the context? What is it, what I mean when I think about that, when I say the context, the context? I'm talking about what are the surrounding verses around this passage? What is the context even of the book itself? People sometimes go in, I've told you this before, they'll rip a a passage out of context, make it mean something it was never intended to mean by the author. Our goal as good students of the Bible is to figure out what Paul intended when he wrote this. Not what I want it to mean. Not what I think it means. It doesn't really matter. What matters is, is we figure out what did Paul mean. And in order to do that, we need to study the context. So when we consider the context, we go back to... Verse 18, that's where the section starts. Let me remind you of this verse. It says there, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? Suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. This verse comes right before verse 19 and 20 that are talking about general revelation. Suppression of the truth, hear me, suppression of the truth implies knowledge of the truth. I can't suppress something I don't have. Do you understand? Suppress, push down, hold down. Paul is implying something. They have something, but they're trying to bury it in the ground. They don't want it. They don't want to be exposed to it. What that truth is, Paul makes clear in the following verses, 19 through 20. So they suppress the truth. What truth? The truth being suppressed is the truth concerning God 
specifically in this passage, in this context, his eternal power and divine nature, both of which he has revealed through his creation or in the things that have been made. That's what they're talking about. That's what Paul's getting at. That's what he's saying. Now, last week, listen, if you weren't here, listen closely. And if you were here, this will be a reminder. I explained that beginning in verse 18, okay, of chapter 1, we have now entered into a section in Romans which goes from chapter 1, 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. That's, it's a unit. It's a unit with, a, with a, a message that's being communicated in that section of Romans. And the message that is being communicated, that Paul is laboring away or labored away to communicate, is that the entire world of humanity... Every single person, both Jew and Gentile. Remember, Gentile is just non-Jewish people. Jew and so you and I, likely you're all we're all Gentiles. We would come under that category biblically. Jew and Gentile, every single person, Paul is gonna prove from 118 to 320 that we are all guilty sinners before God. Every single one of us. And therefore, we desperately need to hear and believe the gospel in order to be saved, in order to be rescued from the wrath of God that is certain to come. Okay? Later in this section, 118 to 320, Paul will specifically address the Jewish people and their guilt before God. They are not guiltless. They are guilty. Guilty. And we'll see that as we move through the text. But here in 118 through 32, Paul is primarily talking about or talking to Gentiles or about Gentiles or non-Jewish people. And these are people, beloved, who historically did not receive, listen, they did not receive any special revelation concerning God like the Jews did. The Jews received quite a bit of special revelation concerning God. But the Gentiles, for the most part, they did not. But nonetheless, through general revelation, through nature or creation, through the things that God had made, God has clearly made himself known to them as well. That's what's going on. That's the context. But listen, this is where it it gets really ugly. How does Paul describe the Gentiles' response to God's general revelation? How does he describe it in this section? They welcomed it? No. He says they suppressed it. They suppressed it. They held it down. Because of their sinfulness, they not only held it down, but in rather than worshiping the God who had plainly revealed himself through his creation, they chose to worship idols. That which is not God. They, they chose to worship gods or a god of their own making, of their own imagination, rather than the true God 
of creation. They're no different than like many people are today in our world. They're doing the same exact thing. Beloved, nothing has really changed. People all over our planet are still suppressing, actively, willfully suppressing the truth that God has plainly revealed to them through his creation concerning himself. See, it is not God that has not made himself known as the atheist might say. Or what he has made known about himself is somehow ambiguous or vague or unclear, as the agnostic might say. Do you understand what I'm saying? So the atheist says there is no evidence for God. The Bible says the exact opposite. The agnostic says, well, there might be evidence, but it's not enough. It's not enough for me to make a a decision about whether I should worship said God. The Bible says the exact opposite. What can be known about God through general revelation has been made plain by God or very obvious to the entire world. That's what the word of God says. Now, you can argue with the word of God. You can choose not to believe the word of God, but you do that at your own risk. That brings me to the next point. Number two, ever since the creation of the world, humanity has clearly perceived what God has made plain about himself through his creation. I want you to see it. It's right there in the text. It's what Paul is saying. Chapter 1, verse 20. Look at your Bibles. For his invisible attributes, God's, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Paul is basically saying that the God who is invisible, okay? You guys know God is invisible, right? Because the scriptures tell us that. God is invisible. He's a spirit. The God who is invisible has made himself visible to everyone, everyone, by revealing his invisible attributes or qualities, namely his sovereign power and divine nature in and through the things that he has made or his creation. That's what Paul is basically saying. Now, you might ask, how does that work exactly? How does that work? Well, I would say it works something like this. And just because I can't define exactly how it works doesn't mean it's not happening. Okay? So if I can't understand exactly how God does all that he does, but he tells me this is what he has done, then it would be foolish and rebellious of me to say just because I as a created being can't figure it out exactly, I choose not to accept what the word of God says. Fine, 
Continue in that rebellion at your own risk. So here's how it might work, how I think this works. When humanity beholds the incredible creation of God, they, according to God's word, are able to some degree to perceive or understand the awesome power of God that is responsible for that very creation that lies behind this incredible universe in world. God has made it in such a way and wired us in such a way that we can understand that and do understand that. And by reflecting on the creation, by considering it, we become aware of God's divine nature according to Romans 1.20, which is the properties or characteristics that make God who he is. So, for instance, like his perfect wisdom or goodness or kindness or love. We become aware of those invisible attributes as we look upon the creation of God. Therefore, everyone... Everyone, beloved, according to the word of God, knows God exists. And they know something about his power and his nature as it relates to this created world. A couple of writers say this. This might help you, hopefully. One writer, biblical scholar, says, Just as artists reveal themselves in what they draw. In other words, something... Their personality, their characteristics come out in their painting or their sculpture. Just as a, a human artist reveals something about himself in, in his product, whether it be paint or sculpt, so the divine artist has revealed himself in his creation. You get that? The divine artist is God. His masterpiece is the created world that we live in. And he has revealed himself in that world to all people. Another writer says this, God in his essence is hidden from human sight. Yet much of him and much about him can be seen through the things he has made. One more. Another writer says, since God is spirit, we learn that from John 4.24, And all his qualities are invisible to physical eyes and can be understood by the human mind only as they are reflected in what has been made, that is, in God's creative work. In God's creative work. An Old Testament passage that is very similar to Romans 1.20 that speaks about this general revelation is Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. You've probably heard it. Verse 1. The heavens. It's talking about the sky. The created heavens. Not heaven where you go to be with God one day if you're a Christian. But the heavens. The skies and all above the, the, the firmaments. Everything above. The heavens declare the glory of God. They declare it. And the sky above proclaims. His handiwork day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Then the writer says, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. 
So all he's saying is, I just said this, the creation pours out speech about God, but it's not literal speech. It's not, you can't hear it talking. But then he says in verse 4, their voice goes out through all the earth and the words to the end of the world. To every part of this world. What part of this world does not come under the heavens? None. What human being doesn't come under the heavens? None. And the heavens are shouting forth and declaring the glory of God and proclaiming His very handiwork. This is what the Word of God says. The message of the created world is continually, since it was created, has been and continues to declare a message about God. That He is creator. He is behind it. He is powerful. And it expresses in and of itself these divine attributes of God like His wisdom Like his mercy when the rains fall. Like his goodness. How the earth functions. How the human body works. His kindness. All of that is revealed in his creation. So according to Romans 1.20, ever since the creation of the world, this is what the word of God says. Humanity has been able to understand or comprehend the message that is inherent in God's creation. However, just because they have clearly perceived it does not mean that they have honored or worshipped the God of creation. In fact, history informs us that Gentiles, that's us folks, Gentiles, non-Jewish people of the world, they became idolaters. Idolaters. They, they became creators and followers of false religions. Did you hear what I just said? They became creators and followers of false religions. It is because of their unrighteousness that they suppress the truth of God. And sadly, beloved, many, many all over this globe are doing the very same thing today. The very same thing. Do you want to know why there are so many different religions in the world? Do you want to know why? You can find that answer in part in Romans 1, 19 through 20. People go, there's got to be, look at all these religions. It's so, there's got to be multiple ways to God. There are not. We have multiple religions because men saw the truth about God, suppressed the truth about God, and out of rebellion turned to idols and created their own religion. And they've been doing it for thousands of years. The result? Thousands of false religions and idols. Do you see? Number three. This is the conclusion that Paul draws. Therefore, this is the third point. Therefore, all who do not worship the true God are absolutely without excuse before him. Look back at the text. I'm not making this up. It's in your Bibles. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now we're going to look at the the verses following verse 20 in more detail in the weeks to come. But now get this for context. Paul goes on to say in verse 21, this is what he says, right after he just said that, for they are without excuse, he says this, so they are without excuse, for although they knew God, look back at your Bibles, verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Paul says, they are without excuse, okay, now get the flow, get the logic of the argument, how it works. They are without excuse because God has to a degree made himself known to all of humanity through his creation. That's verses 19 through 20. But in their unrighteousness, in their sin, humanity suppressed that truth. Verse 18. And refused to honor and worship the true God. Verse 21. And as you read on, you'll find out rather they went after idols. They created idols, gods that are not gods, and they worshiped them. The bottom line is this, guys. No one, no one can really claim ignorance when it comes to God. No one. And no one will be able to offer a valid defense to God for their unwillingness to believe in him. No one. Truly, as the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short, dreadfully short of the glory of God. Even, beloved, even the native in a far away land that has never been told by another person about the God, about the God of the Bible, never heard of him. Even they are without excuse before God, according to Romans 1, 19 through 20. They are without excuse. See, the problem is not that people don't have any or enough information about God. That's not the problem. Because they are constantly exposed to the revelation of God by living in the creation. According to the text. The problem is people suppress the information that God reveals through his creation to them. They suppress it in their unrighteousness. And as a result, Romans 1.21 says they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened. They go further and further into darkness. Okay, you understand? So here's God revealing some light to all people through his creation. And here I am, a sinner. And I say, I don't want light. Curtains, get dark closing curtains. I cover it up. I do whatever I can, right? I want to make sure no light comes on me because of my sin. And where's that put me? Deeper in my darkness. Now I can't see anything at all. And so I begin to spiral downwards in my moral decline. I reject the the light that God has given me. Instead of seeing the light, responding to the light and saying, God, give me more light. I reject the light. 
I reject the light. One writer says this, their condemnation, the unbeliever, is based not on their rejecting Christ of whom they have not heard. See, some people think, they just think, people will only go to hell if they reject Christ. Well, they will go to hell if they reject Christ, but that is not the foundation for their judgment. It is ultimately them sinning against the light that they have. Just like I just explained to you. They all have been exposed to general revelation. But they reject that. They don't want any more light. And yet, because God, get this. God made us to be worshipers. Do you understand? He created us. So he wired us to worship. But he wired us to worship him. But in our sin, we say, I still want to worship, but not you. I'll worship a God of my own imagination. Whether it be Buddha or Islam or you name the list, I'll worship anybody but the true God. That's man's condition, beloved. That's how messed up we are. See, remember I said, starting in Romans 1.18 to 3.20, what Paul is going to do is he's just going to expose the ugliness of humanity. How wretched we are. You think we're good? You think humanity is basically good? You haven't read the Bible. You haven't really read it. Another writer says this. This is actually... I'll tell you who this one. This is David, our sending pastor. He was here a couple of weeks ago. He wrote this as he was working through this text. General revelation, you know what it does? It just exposes the blackness of people's hearts and the willful unbelief that resides there. That's what it does. General revelation comes in, and what it does is exposes how messed up we are. How do people respond to it? They reject it. They suppress it. Oh, there's not enough evidence here for God. Well, I really don't know if there's a God. You know what? I'm going to worship any other God or gods or whatever else. But I will not bow to him. Even though he has clearly made himself plain to me in his creation. That's what's really going on. Whether you consciously know it or not, you need to know it now. It's rebellion. It's rebellion. That's why people don't come to God. It's hearts filled with rebellion. We spend all of our time trying to convince people God exists. Stop doing that. According to the word of God, they know he exists. Talk to them about their rebellion. Talk to them about their sin. And then talk to them about the one that eradicates their sin. Who laid down his life for sin to set them free from the bondage of their sin. To rescue them from their own stupidity. The same way he rescued us. Another writer says this. God in his creation has provided sufficient evidence of himself to hold accountable all who reject that revelation. Get this. Disbelief requires an act of rebellion against common sense. It displays fallen humanity's fatal, deathly bias against God. That's what it does, beloved. 
You and I are born with a bias against God because we're born sinners. See, though, I said this before. The world will tell you, you know what? We're really good people. You know, deep down within, we all have really, most of us have good hearts. Most people are, are nice and good and wonderful people. And to some degree, there is a, a goodness that exists because God has created us in his image. He's wired us a certain way. But it, it is not a, an intrinsic goodness. If you go deep down, if you drill down and look, there's sin there. There's rebellion there. There's a refusal to worship the very God who created us and gives us life. Think about it. David said this too. I was reading his notes. I thought it was so good. With the very breath that God gives us, we reject him. The very vocal cords that God has made for us to be able to communicate to one another, we use to build arguments against believing in him. You see how messed up we are? If it were not, listen, if it were not for the sovereign grace of God, if it were not for the sovereign grace of God powerfully working to draw us to himself, breaking through our sinful, foolish rebellion and removing the blinders from our eyes so that we might believe the gospel. If it were not for that, then every single one of us would still be lost under the condemnation of God and awaiting the certain wrath of God that is to come. Do you understand what I just said to you? Do you understand that? If it were not for the grace of God, we would all still be suppressing the truth of God and certainly the truth of the gospel as well. See, and we know that's true because to the world in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25, Paul says the gospel is a bunch of foolishness to the world. They think it's the dumbest thing ever. Yet to us who are being saved, yet to us where God is sovereignly working, to us it is the power of God unto salvation. You see that? That's a God thing, beloved. It's a God thing. And so when we come to a passage like this, we should just be utterly humbled. If you're here this morning and you're no longer a suppressor, but you have received the the light of God, you have received the truth of the gospel, you're believing in it, you can't take any credit for it. Not an ounce All you can do is bow down and go, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for removing the the stops from my ears, the blinders from my eyes, from getting breaking through this foolish, rebellious heart and rescuing me. Thank you, God. That's what this kind of passage does for us. We look at this and go, I was just like that. And now, beloved, there are some of you here, certainly, who have still not responded to the gospel, still are are suppressing the truth. I would say to you, if 
If you know God is working on you right now, you know you're hearing this message and you say, you know what? I am a rebel. That's what I am. I'm a rebel. Then this is your time right now to surrender. Put up your white flag. Don't be so foolish and stubborn to continue to resist God. If you... If you know he's talking to you right now, he's working in your heart, surrender. And then you too will be able to say, I don't think the gospel is foolishness. I know it is the power of God. I know God exists. I know he created this world. I know he's sovereignly powerful. I know he's kind and good and merciful. I know he is all wise. I know that Jesus Christ was sent by God the Father to save my sorry soul. To rescue me from myself. Believe that and the Bible says you will be saved. You will be saved and you will escape the wrath of God that is to come against everyone who rebelliously refused to believe. This morning, this is our time of communion. We're going to celebrate communion together. This is what I would do. This is how I'm connecting the dots here between this message and communion. When we come together for communion, we take a, those who believe, those who are Christians, that's who this is for. If you're not a Christian, we ask, don't partake. Don't partake. We would love to talk to you about how you can become a Christian. But just realize, this is not... A general communion for anybody and everybody. This is a special communion. It always has been, it always will be. For those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior, as their Lord. It is for you. It is a celebration. But beloved, think about what you're celebrating. Yeah, he died on the cross for my sins. That is true. Without that, you could never stand before God. You could never be made right with God. But maybe this morning spend some time giving thanks to God that he rescued you. That he providentially and sovereignly worked to draw you to himself. You truth suppressor. You rebel. Because that's what I do. I was a rebel. But God didn't give me what I deserve. In his sovereign saving love, he worked out all the circumstances so that I would believe. That I would hear the gospel and believe. God did that. So when I come together, when we come together, I think about this communion meal. I just want to give him praise and thanks and worship. He sent his son to pay for my sins and then sovereignly worked to bring me to a place where I would believe the gospel. And it is because of that and that alone that this true suppressor is now saved. Let me pray for the communion. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, especially this morning for saving us.
those of us who know you, Father, who have a relationship with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we don't just know about you. We know you. We know you. And Father, we are so grateful. As Paul will continue to lay out, just just unfold before us in this section here, the whole world is so guilty. We were guilty, Father. Sin has made us idiots. But Father, you sovereignly worked in our lives, those of us who know you now, through a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have worked to make us your own, to break through all that nonsense, all that foolish rebellion, to crack right through it, Father. Your light came shining through, destroyed the darkness. God, you have granted to us the ability to believe, to believe. Father, we are thankful this morning. Now, Father, I pray that we would be good ambassadors. We would be the same one. We would be the ones who have experienced this great gift. We would be the ones telling others about this great gift. Father, you have chosen to save people, truth suppressors, through the preaching of your gospel. Now, Father, that's not the way I would do it, but I'm an idiot. And you are all wise. Loving, merciful, powerful. So, Father, I trust you. And you have determined to save rebels through the simple process of proclaiming the gospel, the good news concerning Jesus Christ. And when that happens, we've already looked at it. We know the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is through those means that you accomplish salvation for sinners. So, Father, may we just be faithful to minister to this messed-up world in the way that you have prescribed, that we might preach the gospel, having confidence that it is through that message that you sovereignly save those who have, till that point, resisted and rebelled against you, suppressing the very truth that surrounds them 24 hours a day. Father, bless this communion meal. Bless it as we remember the significance of it and what you have accomplished for us. In Jesus' name, amen. The elements are passed. You hold on to them. At the end, we'll all partake together.